0: It's gonna be a really neat behind the scenes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Because something always magical happens. Wait, what? Did you just make that up? Hey, it's Meredith For Real, the Curious Introvert. Listen each week as I talk with someone new. The topics are as ADD as I am, but they'll inspire you to stay curious and grow. Big thanks to our location sponsor, the UWF Historical Trust. Hey, Curiositers, it's me, Meredith. If you're not someone who got their revenge travel in over the summer, this episode is for you. It's a mixtape of all the best clips from my travel and culture-related episodes. It's been so special for me to create all these connections all over the globe with my guests. And you know that feeling that you get when you travel and you think, oh, so-and-so would love this. I can't wait to tell them about it. Well, that's how I feel creating these episodes for you. I get so excited, and I can't wait to share them with you so you can mind travel with me. And I want to say, if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. It means the world to me that you keep hitting the play button. Your loyalty means so much to me that I've created a a once-a-month mingle to get to know you. It's on Zoom, and you can save your spot using the link in the episode description. And if you're new here, welcome. I started this podcast in 2019 with the mission to inspire people to choose curiosity over judgment, and I especially like shining light on people who either defy category or are a paradox. Each guest brings a personal development opportunity along with their story so you can stay curious and grow. Each episode is wildly different from the next, so you can think of it as a personal development podcast for the ADD. So if you like bright, meaningful entertainment, have a look around. All right. Enjoy the show. So I would like to open with a confession,
1: mm-hmm.
0: if that's okay. Yes. Okay. I love the Netflix show, Indian, India Matchmaking.
2: <laughs> I love, have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I've read so many reviews about it. And to be very frank, every episode, according to my understanding, is spot on. Seriously, that's how matrimony goes in India, especially on Sundays, because all the newspapers, doesn't matter if it's a national newspaper or a regional newspaper, if it's in Hindi, English, or any other language, it will carry a matrimonial section. And parents who have marriageable age kids, they religiously go through that listing every week Sunday, and they'll try to figure out who's a good match If you don't find good match, then you find a matchmaker.
0: (laughs) Wow, I didn't know about the paper. Did your parents do that with you? They still do it. (laughs) So back to what you were saying about you watch Star Wars and lots of American TV. Yeah,
2: uh, it's Star World. So we get a lot of uh, Star World in India. uh, Oh, Star uh, World? Star World. Star World is actually uh, the one that is kind of... um, Getting all CBS and NBC and all other uh, ABC kind of programs um, sourced from here and packaging repackaging it according to Indian audience. So I used to watch a lot of that. And that was my understanding of America. And Friends, obviously, I've watched it, like, so many times. Really? Seriously. And I used to seriously think, like, you can have that kind of independent life where you are living with, you know, one or two friends. And then whatever you are doing and you find, uh, you know, love across the hall. (laughs) (laughs) is awesome seriously so when i moved here i was seriously very excited about that kind of living like i'll have roommates mm-hmm. i'm going to college and obviously there's that big hallway and you know people mingle freely across hallways and like there's no like you know that uh, the caste system or like any kind of social oh, system right. or yeah. anything like you're free to you know just mingle with anybody you want to uh, but sadly, that didn't happen because I was an international student. So, uh, yes, you are living in a specific housing communities, but um, it's with studies and all the other things that you're supposed to do, it's very difficult to have that kind of like, especially friends level of friendships because if I rewatch some of those episodes, I'm like, so what exactly is their work? What exactly are they doing? Because they are sitting in that coffee shop the whole time. <laughs> Exactly. So we didn't have that kind of time to um, just uh, you know go through uh, like our life like that. So yeah. So that so was disappointing for you.
0: It was kind of disappointing. What's something that you feel like people misunderstand about travel?
3: Oh, that's a hard one. Um, for Americans, mm-hmm. I find that most people think every other country is unsafe. Most Americans stick with Europe. Um, or Mexico, just being that it's close. Um, but there's a lot more out there that I've found. People are all the same everywhere you go. And you're not going to be unsafe. Or just because this country is having these issues right now doesn't mean you're going to see them or be involved in them heavily. Um, in some cases, I have come across that. Um, and not knowingly walking into it. But for me, I think... I get a lot of the sayings of like, well, why are you going there? It's unsafe. Like, it's unsafe here sometimes, too. So for me, I think a big misunderstanding is definitely people think that just because of what they hear on the news is the whole entire country or every single person in that country.
0: With your travel, you've been like a ton of places. What are some places that completely surprised you? They weren't at all what you
4: expected. Wow. um, I would say every place. You know, there rarely is there a place that you go to and it matches what you have pictured in your head. For me, Africa has always been that. Ethiopia, traveling to Ethiopia for a show back in the day, I think we were there in 2011. And, you know, Ethiopia is what you read about in National Geographic and what you see on the news. And the reality of a place is usually vastly different because you get the, the, surface overview, you usually get the highlights and the lowlights of a place when you're reading about it or you hear about it on the news. When you get there, you get to dig into the details. Everything from the beautiful dress that people wear to the kindness of strangers to the food to the archaeology those details rarely get told in in the highlights of media and when you go to those places that's what you see you you see the people for what they are on a daily basis not on a media blast highlight basis and all these places are so special. India was the same way. Zimbabwe was, was the same way. Even Fiji was the same way to me. You, know, you meet these incredible people, you sit with them and you drink kava and you have a fully different experience than one you could ever have uh, reading about it on, online.
0: When I was um, reading about all of this, I was reading about the Sherpas and how um, their religion is really passive and nothing is about self. And that it's against their religion to, like, pray for themselves. They only, like, pray for others. And so being a Sherpa, guiding others to their—because they consider the mountain sacred. Right. Um, that, that is an act of worship to help others. And what was so poignant to me is that so many of the um, female climbers that I researched— we're doing it for a cause, whether it was women's rights or because of a loved one who had passed, or for you, you had these um, cancer patients in mind. So I thought that was really interesting that the female approach was so aligned with the Sherpas. Yeah, the Sherpa culture is absolutely
5: amazing. So I think some people equate Sherpa with just like someone that gets you up the mountain, but actually, there are people um, that's actually a, a like a, a um, what's the word I'm trying to use? They're all the whole community. Their last name is Sherpa, so right. um, it's a community of people. They do not all climb it's a mountains. People group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, Karma, my Sherpa, was absolutely amazing. And when you go to Everest, you don't know who is going to be your Sherpa for the actual summit day. So you kind of get to know all of them, but Karma was the Sherpa boss, basically. He was in charge of all the Sherpas. So I didn't know if he would actually be summiting or if he would stay with Arnold and kind of just make sure that everything was going well and you know everyone was taken care of because our guy did not summit this year. He stayed at advanced base camp and just kind of make sure that everyone is moving and advancing and coming down that needs to you know, at the right pace. So, I didn't know until right until our like final summit push that Karma um, was actually going to be with me, and it was like such an answer prayer because he had been kind of with us the, the whole trip. I mean, he'd definitely been with all of us the whole trip, but he'd been with me on my really hard days and days I was struggling, and we just had really bonded. So I was really
0: hoping that he would be with me, and then he was, so it was awesome. That's amazing. They had some really tragic stuff happen um, in the Sherpa community community in um I think 2014 yes like 14 or 16 um Sherpas died I guess they're called the ice doctors they go to yeah. that um the Kumba ice Icefall yeah mm-hmm. and they basically make it passable for everybody
5: right so um on the south side in Nepal the ice doctors go and test all the ropes and ladders and everything to make sure that um, they're safe for clients and then on the north side we have the Chinese rope fixing team I went from the north side so the rope Chinese rope fixing team goes ahead of you and fixes the ropes and that was a big struggle this year on both sides the weather window did not permit um, either team to go up ahead of time and fix the ropes and um, so then when there was even the chance to go higher there were no ropes. So it was a lot of waiting this year and then a very short weather window. I think it was just the 22nd to the 24th. So most people tried to summit on the 23rd last year, which is what created those long lines and stuff that everybody
0: saw. Yes, I saw the the, pic, the picture. The picture. Yeah. yeah. You said you went up on the north side. I heard that there was a Sherpa who passed away um, who was wearing some green shoes Oh, green boots. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that um, he's still there, his body's still there, and that when there's not a lot of snowfall, you step around him. Did that happen? Yeah, so
5: um, there's about 200 bodies that are still left on Everest. Um, I saw a couple, and it's like you know that that's there and that's going to happen, but it's so surreal when you see it because the bodies don't decompose, so it just <gasps> looks like a person. and And they're um, like in all their hiking gear mm -hmm. oh my god yeah it's really crazy so the first one I saw like was kind of out on the trail so we did have to just kind of walk around and at that point you're just like okay um you're praying for their family and just like friends and then you're praying like oh lord please let me get up and down safely yeah so did you ever think at a certain point you were gonna die no, but I could have like looking back now I'm like I really could have died then, but um, I wasn't thinking about it at the time. I think you're so like oxygen deprived, you're so exhausted and y- your body's
0: not thinking rationally <laughs> when you're at the actual summit. Do you have any yeah. fa- favorite idioms in Spanish or any other languages that you find other than para servirle or like that are funny?
6: I mean, I don't know necessarily funny, but how much did you love in Costa Rica how everyone would always say Pura Vida to everything, you know? Yeah. It was like, you'd say gracias for a, a mojito and they'd be like Pura Vida. That would be their response, which is just like pure life. You know, life is meant to be enjoyed and it's blissful and every moment is a gift. And this is what life is about, you know? Yeah. And I think we in, in quote unquote more developed societies and I really say that in in with the bunny ears and the quotation marks because what you know, if we talk about having infrastructure and nonstop electricity as a sign of development, then I think cultures, you know, such as Mexico and Costa Rica, where family and community are so important, if we can't look at that from a different angle to see these cultures as being actually developed in their own way, I think we're actually mixing, missing the big picture.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm super passionate about that. It's really at the top of my things that make me vibrate on a high frequency, but it's also very practical and it can get you out of sticky or awkward situations, which you've mentioned that it's helped you in a few situations so So can you talk about that?
6: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I I lived in Korea, in South Korea, in 2008, 2009, and uh, it was actually the first country I lived in on my own as an adult uh, without my parents attached to me and really going out there and doing my own thing. and. Uh, I went over there to work, starting a musical theater academy over there. And, um, you know, when I moved there, I've always been fascinated by language and culture and travel and stuff. And I, I went full in and I wanted to learn this language. And I started learning the Hangul script. Interesting fact, actually, Korea was one of the first countries in the world with a 100 percent literacy rate because um, King Sejong, Uh, Korean people are very proud of King Sejong because he brought the Korean alphabet to the country. Essentially, he developed this language system because prior to the Hangul alphabet, uh, Korea was using Hancha, which is the Chinese alphabet. And the Chinese alphabet is really not for laymen. It's so complicated. Every word almost has its own character. So your average person couldn't learn how to read. And then King Sejong completely revolutionized the Korean language by developing its own script, which then enabled, honestly, anybody um, to medium intelligence would be able to learn Hangul in about two to three hours of concentrated effort sitting down. You could actually start reading words and sentences very, wow. very quickly. And so Korea actually became one of the first countries to have a 100% literacy rate as a result of this. So, I mean, these are just things you would I I would never have learned that unless I actually made the effort to learn Korean, you know? And, you know, when I would meet Korean people in any part of the world, when I would talk about these things, they were almost just kind of blown away that I had done this kind of work and that I had made this kind of effort to learn about their culture and their language. And it just gave me such entree into that culture and particularly living in Korea, um, you know, the United States, Uh, was heavily involved in the Korean War. So um, South Korea is obviously very pro-American, and there is a very big American presence in Korea as well. Um, Particularly in Seoul, there was a huge military base for a very long time. I believe since I left, they moved it elsewhere, but um, there was an area of Seoul called Itaewon, which was kind of the the Western ghetto. That's what I'll call it. But um, it's basically where all of the military people were hanging out when they weren't on duty. And, um, you know, it was very easy to live in Korea within this bubble where you never actually had to learn any Korean. And I came across so many people who were either there with the military or were English teachers, because that was one of the number one things that people went over to Korea to do. And I met all these English teachers from from mostly from the United States and Canada, because that's those were the number one. Uh, that was the number one accent group that Koreans desired. But I also met a lot of people from Ireland, from the UK, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. But I found that these people were basically living in these English speaking bubbles in Korea without ever really learning any Korean. And I had met even people who had been living there for like seven to 10 years and they still couldn't read Hangul. Literally, it takes three hours to sit down and learn how to read it. And I realized you've been living here for seven to 10 years, looking at buses, looking at signs, looking at things, not having a clue what's going on around you. And I just found that so fascinating. Um, But I, I really made the effort. I jumped in, did full on Korean classes. Um, achieved probably a, a low-intermediate to uh, mid-intermediate range in Korean in my in my fluency. And I did a trip once by myself around Korea, um, you know, just grabbed a little backpack and off I went taking a bus to the countryside. And, you know, when you look like me, you know, a, a brown guy, bearded, um, it can be sometimes a little bit off-putting or worrisome to people who aren't exposed to a lot of different cultures and stuff. And, you know, when you go into the countryside of Korea, um, I often found that people when they would immediately see me would, they would immediately kind of be taken aback or they, they, they wanted to take retreat and step away. And what I found was when I would speak Korean, um, I remember one time I went to a restaurant and the the women running the restaurant, I could totally tell that they were open, but they were basically telling me they weren't open because they didn't (laughs) want me to sit down. (laughs) And then I started speaking Korean and then I, you know, I started asking them, is there another restaurant in the area that maybe I could go to that 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 is open i was asking them in korean in the very polite way to do so and immediately when they realized that i could actually speak their language and i could read their menus they immediately said oh no no you can come in and sit down and then they basically started you know making all of these very unique dishes that you wouldn't normally find in a restaurant that they would normally do for their families and i ended up being like spoon fed essentially by these (laughs) ajumas that's what they call them in korea like aunties or like You know middle-aged women that's how they refer to them it's not nice in western standards but um over in eastern cultures they like to be called aunties and this Mm -hmm. is the respectful way to do so and uh yeah i just i just felt so welcome immediately and i could see all of that that worry and all of that aloofness and standoffishness just melt away and i just felt so welcome and i i felt like i really made um an amazing cultural connection there and also you know, they probably had never met an American person who spoke Korean so well before, and much less an American person who was not Caucasian who Mm. could even speak any Korean. So for them, it must have just been the first time, as for me, the first time to have had such an experience as well. So it was just a beautiful moment that I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life, really.
0: Hey everyone, just a quick interruption to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. The UWF Historical Trust. We shoot the show at the Museum of Commerce and the Pensacola Museum of History. And it's not just an amazing step back into the 1800s and 1900s, but it's an event space too. And because they love creative collaborations and have spaces for all party sizes, they're pretty much the perfect venue to make your event stand out. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. It seems like no one can agree on anything nowadays, but I have found the unifier to unite us all. Mosquitoes suck. Mine were so bad, they were in my car. Have you ever tried to swat a mosquito while driving? Not advised. Insect has been great because they guarantee their work and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. Now back to the show. Was there any like crazy situations with that? Because it did look very um, out there in the middle of nowhere
7: um it it just depended like uh you know the alaska show pretty much went without a hitch uh everglades went without a hitch but we did stuff like uh you know my cameraman in madagascar got a stick like engorged into his leg like in the middle of nowhere so we had to kind of make decisions or do we pull it out do we you know we so we did all this stuff on camera and guyana was was for real like we got in we from the get-go, I knew we were dealing with a really shady dude, and we got in the middle of the jungle, and he kind of renegotiated the deal over and over and over until all the cash was gone, regardless of having double what he said it was going to cost and, and all the porters leaving in the middle of the night, basically, and, and we're just kind of making our way out with the gear and made a show out of that instead of the show we were trying to make. So uh, there was a lot of reactionary production so in that sense, it was very real as well. You know, I'd say the Guyana show was more real than than any of them because we were dealing with a lot of bullshit. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's crazy.
0: That would be really scary. Yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. I'm cut out for that.
7: And it was. It was one of you know. I I I think I really like watching shows like Naked and Afraid and yeah. things like that these days because I'm just like, oh man, I I kind of know how that feels. You know, and and it's one of those where I look yeah. back and go, I, I'm I'm really glad that that happened because it's one. Of, it's that experience in your life. Like, well, if I can handle that, then this is no big deal.
0: And you have proof. So no one can say, oh, man, you were exaggerating. But like, actually, right. If you right. look at episode two, yeah. you'll see that I wasn't. Can you think of some examples of either while in Georgia or in other travels where the uncertainty made you thrive either by personal growth or through just something super badass that happened because of it?
8: Well, the first time I actually went to Mongolia, I, I got connected to this guy, my friend. You know, She's in New York. She said, I met this guy. You need to follow him on Instagram and just see what he does. So I follow him on, I follow him on Instagram, and his first picture is him holding an eagle riding a horse. And I'm like, okay, this dude's fucking cool. So I send him a message. I'm like yo, I want to come to Mongolia and do this. Like, this is insane. So he's like, well, actually I'm going back in a month. Let's jump on a call. Okay. So we get on a call and he's like, how good are you on a horse? In my mind, I'm going, I've been on a horse when I was like 12, I took lessons, you know. It's been like 20 years since I've done it, but it's, you know, it's like riding a bike. So I was like, ah, I'll be fine. Like, I can handle it. You're and like, he's I like, went to the fair. I went to the fair once. <laughs> there was a yeah, horse I was fair. like, I rode a pony one <laughs> time. Same. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, ah, they don't scare me. So he's like, OK, that, that's all I wanted to know. And so he's like, OK, I have this trip. Da, da, da. So fast forward, I go to Mongolia. I'm on this trip with like 10 other professional horse racers. They all have ridden in this race that is held in Mongolia it's called the Mongol Derby and they do this for fun they get on these horses and ride a thousand kilometers over 10 days like with like five pounds a pack and I mean they like are insane people they are badasses so I'm in this group with all of these people who can you know like gallop and you know ride horses for days and hours and find the most joy in it and I'm like oh my god like I grossly overestimated my riding skills on this like but they were all very nice and patient and I mean I was wearing like my snowboarding helmet like these brand new chaps that I put on the wrong way the first day they were like all looking at me like who is this girl like <laughs> why is she in this scenario and it ended up all working out so you basically ride horses for two days to get to the the Tatum tribe the tribe that rides reindeer but You know the terrain's really boggy so you don't really go that fast and you know they were all very patient eric made sure i always had a very nice horse which isn't always the easiest because the horses there are semi-wild oh so they don't they don't put them in fences they let them run free so
0: wait so you you went from like lessons when you were 12 to riding a semi-wild horse on the boggy plains of mongolia
9: yeah oh for two days wow (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's uncomfortable for sure.
9: I remember going on dates uh, with, you know, with guys. I remember I was on a date with this German guy and, you know, the bill came and it was just a state of shock for me when he was, uh, you know, he was sitting there and oh, well, you you had this and it was 1237 and I had this and it was and there's no there was nothing worse for me. Like a part of me would just die if that happened on the first date. And, you know, so a lot of guys would always say this. Well, do Russian girls are Russian girls gold diggers? And it's not like that for us. It's just, it's. I guess it's a traditional process of courtship in a way that the man, you know, can handle um, taking you out and paying for the bill, and that money shouldn't be an issue on the first date. But yeah, I've, I've definitely. I think that has changed a little bit over over time. Like I'm a little bit less particular about it. I guess on the first date, yes, but overall, like I'm not going to be expecting the guy to pay for everything uh, when we when we start dating. But I was like that. Uh, like that to me was a was a big thing. Um, so yeah, that I guess to me is a pretty big part of being Russian. Um, I'm also very um, emotional and soulful, I guess that's a Russian quality. Um, but to be fair, a lot of people tell me that sometimes a little I, I come off as a bit more, let's say, too passionate uh, for a Russian uh, because they assume Russians are just cold-hearted, cold-blooded, blonde, tall women, which I'm not. <laughs> I also like the European approach to dating, which is that, you know, Europeans like to put labels on things a little bit less, like the French, for example, don't understand the concept of dating. And I love that because I also find it really, let's say, superficial and a bit... um, I think you're, you're trying to be on your best behavior when you sit across the table from someone and all you're doing is you're, it's an interview process, right? And it's so much harder to actually gauge attraction and, you know, you come into this date and it's all just so pre-planned. So I do like it when you, you hang out with someone, you go and you do all these things and it's not, let's say, an officially a, a date that you really get to see like, oh, do I feel attracted to this person, right? Right. So, yeah. Yes. A, a, f- a few different countries, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think that's. It's always good to absorb um, the best parts, and I think that's part of the. I don't know. uh, I was going to ask you about this. Um, How would you describe like the importance of dating outside your culture? Because I think some people, maybe I'm, you know, I only know what I know, right? So maybe by some people, I just mean Americans. I don't know. (laughs) But, (laughs) But like, maybe some people think like, oh, that's that's cute. Like, yeah. You wild college student, you just you know <laughs> give that a shot. Um, but maybe this answer, this question is better framed outside of the uh, world of romance and, and attraction. But why is it important to build those relationships with other cultures, in your opinion?
9: Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question. I think even dating outside of your state might be like a, a, a different thing, <laughs> yes. right? In the US, like, that It you're totally is. Yes. <laughs> right? um, yeah, so I, I think I think it's definitely a very interesting thing to to date someone outside of your culture. I think it's also a very complicated thing to date somebody outside of your culture and you know, which is what I've been doing for most of my life and which is what I'm doing now. Um you do really get to understand what drives you in a way right like you really get to start thinking about um, how do you communicate how do you express yourself Um, it's an interesting experience for that i mean it's yeah I, i i would definitely suggest it again um there are certain cultures for me that are more compatible than other cultures like I think it's great, for example, when you get, again, a Latin American and let's say a Scandinavian, and they all, and you know, and then they're in a relationship. And I understand why the two are uh, so often, there's so many relationships where you get those two contrasts, right? One is very cold, generally speaking, one is very warm. And of course, they're lacking that within their own culture. You know, like if I'm in Sweden and everybody's reserved and cold and, you know, I crave for that passion. And on the other side, a Latin American craves for maybe a tall blonde, I don't know, with that, with that steely exterior. The interesting thing about that, there is definitely like a cool balance there. But there's also things that I'm not sure um, are are very easy within a relationship to work around. For example, uh, the concept of Love, like in a, in a, for Latin Americans is jealousy. It's passion. It's, you know, it's emotions. And that for them, it's like, if you don't have those feelings, you don't have this passion, it's just boring. That's not the way you, sh- you showcase your, your feelings for someone. Uh, whereas for a Swedish person, those are, uh, that's unnecessary. That's completely unnecessary. Uh, what's important is that you're a good partner and you do nice things for each other and, that's it so you know going down the road those two are like I- i'm really attracted to you but i but I- this does not work for me you know i'm i'm tired of all the emotion that you're you're asking of me and the other person's like i'm bored because i'm not getting enough um so it's it's an interesting way to really understand like what you really need for yourself in a relationship and can that other culture give it to you
0: when you mentioned the kama sutra The Kama Sutra in the West has a lot to do with Cosmopolitan magazine. So (laughs) can you explain the difference between the Kama Sutra in the Indian writings versus what most of us picked up in eighth grade?
1: Yeah, so in the West, um, (laughs) they, they consider Kama Sutra just about these positions. And like I mentioned earlier, the Kama Sutra is not focused on positions. The positions are also a very, very small part of what the Kama Sutra has to offer. Um, now, like I said, the Kama Sutra was written 300 A.D., you know, thousands of years ago. Um, and the Kama Sutra is, is about pleasure. It was actually written for, for a woman, for teaching a man how to pleasure a woman. And there's so many, like, so many different, you um, so many different, so many different versions of the Kama Sutra, because each time a king came into his kingdom, um, the Kama Sutra was commissioned because they believed um, that if two two couples or if two people were able to reach their, um, find pleasure in their physical intimacy, um, if those, if that couple was happy, that meant society would be stable. And if society was stable, that meant the kingdom would be stable. So the whole life was based on people finding their pleasure and their happiness within the relationships, which obviously ripple out into the kingdom. Um, And so the Kama Sutra is a very, very powerful text. And it has lots, lots of offerings and lots of knowledge on how to, um, I don't like the word seduce, but um, I guess, yeah, I guess seduce is the only word I'm limited to, seduce a lover. How to, um, how to, the Kama structure is basically focused on um, refinement and beauty and enchantment and making love and having pleasure. And you know, in the West, it's very much degraded to like, oh, you need to do like this position to like get this. And like, it's very much like physical goal oriented, physical goal oriented, which is what it's not at all.
0: Did you notice any difference between the other students in your school, their parents versus your parents in as far as like how the family was run and their parenting
10: styles? Yeah, I mean, I think Americans are definitely more, they show their affection a lot more. I hear all the time, even with you and your parents, I remember coming over to your house and you and your parents were always like, oh, I love you, mom. I love you. I love you you don't hear that kind of language (laughs) around my household. And, and, uh, so I, 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 I love that about the Americans always saying, uh, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. I love you, my daughter. Um, and that that's great that that is like the showing of affection. I think it's very important. Um, and, and it's, it's pretty, um, pretty much conceit in the, the Asian culture. You don't really show your affections. But on the other hand, we also don't offend our parents the same way that Americans would. Um, you would you even go, screw you, dad. You don't know anything about me and my <laughs> life. Leave me alone. We, we don't, I mean, there are some ex- exceptions. But in general, we don't exchange in that kind of language. So I think Americans are definitely more extreme. You would sit down and talk about each other's feelings. And that kind of stuff is generally not not happening here in in Taiwan or in in mainland China either, I guess.
0: I definitely noticed that there was a lot more respect for elders in like just being around your your family members?
10: Yes, Um, we do. We have this, uh, I think it's probably building or maybe it was like just like an uh, instilled value that's from a very young age, you're told to always respect elderly people. And you, yeah, I mean, from bowing to always say, whenever you're walking on the street with your parents you see like an elderly person they will always give you a nudge saying oh yeah say hello to uncle so so say hello to aunt so and so you have to it's it's like a it's like the thing that you just do automatically and you give them a title in the end like auntie in 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 Chinese, or uncle in Chinese, just to show your respect to elderly people.
0: It doesn't mean yeah. you're related to them. It's just saying no, like, it's re- ma'am.
10: Yes, basically. And uh, it's, it's really annoying because you could, like if, it's very annoying because if you get to a certain age, like for me, they would call me like sister, which is like an older sister. Um, but when you get a little older, like me now, you get called auntie. So like at the at the turning point that someone started calling me auntie, I, I went, oh, I'm a sister, not an auntie. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Still respect me, but get it right. Respect <laughs> me, but yeah, stick, yeah. Keep me in the sister category. That's please. disrespectful. Auntie <laughs> is very disrespectful.
0: <laughs> so tell me about... Um. Uh, some food, because I was surprised when we were talking about this beforehand, you were like, can we talk about some food? And I said, absolutely, let's talk about food. So what's the big deal with food ta- in Taiwan compared to the USA? Why is that a different thing that matters?
10: Food is such a huge culture here in Taiwan. Everything is food, 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 food. You know, like instead of saying, uh, hello, how are you? People ask you, have you eaten as a greeting yeah absolutely it's weird it doesn't matter what time what time of the day so it'd be like two o'clock in the afternoon they would go have you eaten and if i were to be honest i'll be like of course not two o'clock in the afternoon what are you talking about i've eaten my breakfast and lunch. why is that important but that's how important food culture is in asia and um, say if we were to go to like a a, a, a very scenic place, say uh, the equivalency to the Yellowstone National Park or Niagara Falls in America, in here in Taiwan to be somewhere like the Sun Moon Lake, which is like a beautiful lake in the middle of Taiwan. Say if you went for a weekend and you came back, you talk to your friends about your weekend in Sun Moon Lake. They, the first question they would have is, is hey, did you eat a famous Uh, tea eggs or the famous dumplings when you were there, not that, have you, what what was the scenery like, oh, what was it like, it's not, it's always about food, 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 and on the way there, if you were to go with a Taiwanese friend, you would have to stop five times for some famous snack on the way, (laughs) I kid you not, it's ridiculous. So I come from
0: a Pentecostal background where you declared your faith with confidence it was often looks pretty cocky. And there was lots of talk about being assured in your relationship with God. So when I heard you say in a different interview that, um, I don't know, you said, I don't know if God hears my prayers, but it's important that I say them. I was, it just really struck me. It struck me as surprising, confusing, and really humble. So I was hoping you could explain what that means in terms of like, your relationship with God, and that sort of heavenly aspect of acceptance?
11: Sure, sure. I, I, I mean, I think, first of all, Judaism is different than Christianity in that it's, you know, what makes a Jew born to a Jewish mother, someone born to a Jewish mother, that's it. Really, that's the end of the story. Or, or conversion, according to whatever sources you're following, right? But what, it, what that hasn't spoken to is belief right i don't have to make a declaration of belief now now judaism is 3500 to 5000 years old you can pretty much call you can call pentecostal fervor in religious environments in judaism but but by and large many jews you meet don't believe in god many jews you believe you meet don't don't have any religious practice whatsoever you know there are there are film Festival Jews there are culinary Jews there are Israeli Jews there are Zionist Jews there are you know and uh, there are religious Jews there are really religious Jews there are, you know so but what I loved about Judaism and what I what I loved was not so much that I was a place where I could have a relationship with God but it was a place where I could struggle to have a relationship with God and that's what I loved that it was a group of people for me and I keep seeking out those groups that come together that are trying to be in relationship with God and many from personally as you said many days it feels like my you know my prayers are dribbling down the front of my shirt you know what I mean like I should wear a bib when I pray you know they're not going up to heaven they're kind of just kind of like you know so that's that's one aspect and and then there were there were you know, just countless examples of, 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 of the struggle, mm-hmm. be in that relationship. There's a great, great, uh, there's a Hasidic rabbi from the late 1700s named Levi Yitzhak from Berdichev, the town of Berdichev in the Ukraine. And, and he is said to have said to the town atheist, the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. <laughs> and I love that. I decided many years ago that on Shabbat I was going to I present as a very religious person. I'm not nearly as religious. People think I'm way more religious and therefore closed-minded and right-wing and 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 want to separate than I am. And I decided years and years ago that I was going to say hello to everyone on Shabbat. Now, traditionally on Shabbat, people that keep Shabbat look down on people that don't keep Shabbat. So if someone's running with their walkman on, that's that's not permissible. So Religious people look away. Someone's getting in their car or taking boxes out of their car. That's They're breaking Shabbat. The Bible says if you see a stick gatherer, stone him to death, right? <laughs> so I should stone this guy to death if, if I'm going to be biblical. Instead, I say hello.
0: Thanks for listening. If you heard something that was so good you wished you could have taken notes, don't worry. I got you. All you have to do is text REAL r e a l to 66866 if you're in the US and meredithforreal.com if you live elsewhere and you'll get a bulleted, clickable summary delivered to your email inbox. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the full version of the episodes to this mixtape and you can find them all in the episode description. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a man who survived a DMV holdup, a paraglider collapse, and peeing his pants on national TV. Talk to you next week.